This is a special combo edition of the Cigar Dave Show and Bold Alpha Podcast. Cigar Dave, Alpha Dave, the General Alpha Male-in-Chief. We continue celebrating National Bourbon Heritage Month. Today, our special guest is David Nolan, retired vice chairman of Millennium Partners, as we talk bourbon and business. This special Cigar Dave and Bold Alpha Podcast are presented by New World by A.J. Fernandez. There's a new world for every palate, from the mild New World Connecticut, to the medium New World Cameroon, to the ultra-flavorful, bold New World Oscuro, AJFCigars.com, by Gurkha, the world's finest cigars, including the Gurkha Real. Connecticut rapper comes to Gurkha, mild, creamy, and smooth, GurkhaCigars.com, and by Davidoff of Geneva, introducing the new Camacho Nicaragua, forged in fire with the wild flavors of Nicaragua. Camacho, live loud. Available at DavidoffGeneva.com. This is the Cigar Dave Podcast with The General. As we celebrate National Bourbon Heritage Month, we have a special combination Cigar Dave and Bold Alpha combination podcast for you today. We've got bourbon and business, and I can think of no better, two better topics that go hand in hand, but I think if you add a cigar, you've got the trifecta, bourbon, business, and cigars. And in my travels, I had the great fortune of meeting a fellow cigar and bourbon connoisseur and also a well-renowned business executive, David Nolan, who for many years was the vice chairman of Millennium Partners, and we'll get into that. First, Dave, welcome to the Combination Cigar Dave and Bold Alpha podcast. Thank you, Dave. And as always, uh, we have uh, come to you. We come to you from Command Center Alpha, classified locations somewhere in the North American continent. And the nice thing is, Dave, wherever we have our cigars, our spirits, uh, our delicacies, our grills, Command Center Alpha could be anywhere in the world. Not even a virus can find us. That's exactly right. So, Dave, let's talk about your background. First of all, where are you from? I'm from Long Island, New York. Long Island originally, and uh, and I know that you're involved with Johns Hopkins University. May I assume that you attended Johns Hopkins? Yes, went to Johns Hopkins, graduated 71, uh, and uh, had some good good times down there. And uh, uh, that was, uh, we played f- football down there. Uh, a good friend of mine, Sam Palmisano, became, uh, was the center. He became the chairman of IBM. Jim McMenamin became uh, director of admissions, Columbia. I mean, how these guys ever uh, made it, I don't know, but they're <laughs> terrific, uh, terrific guys. But, uh, and I just finished uh, my 12 years on the, on the board of trustees. We have something in common, Dave. I lived in Baltimore after I graduated from Syracuse University in 1986. Lived in downtown Baltimore from 86 until 1989 before I moved to the cigar city of Tampa. Absolutely loved Baltimore, loved living downtown. Mayor William Donald Schaefer, who was the last great mayor of Baltimore, did a spectacular job of reinvigorating and re-energizing the Inner Harbor and downtown area. Very safe, really changed the dynamics of Baltimore. Sadly, things have dramatically changed. Now, you have brought four different bourbons that we're going to be enjoying today. The Buffalo Trace, which we've already poured, and I'm going to take a little sip here momentarily, all from the Buffalo Trace Distillery, the Weller 12, the Four Roses Small Batch, which will 
because of the rye content, will give a slightly different spicier complexion on the palate. And the granddaddy of them all, the Pappy Van Winkle 23-year. Very tough to get. Never sells for retail. They are snapped up as soon as they come on the market. Absolutely spectacular. And you brought a bottle, and that is going to be the absolute grand finale. So let me take a sip of the... Buffalo Trace, one of my favorites. Can't go wrong. Very reasonably priced, 25 bucks or so. Mm. Mm. Now, I'm doing what's called the Kentucky Chew. One of the great master distillers told me you want to almost chew the bourbon to really get the flavor. And I'm getting some nice notes of zestiness, a little spice on the tongue, almost some citrus notes as well. Now, once you take and just put a little drop of branch water in there. A little, little drop okay. of spring water in here to just say, mm. we're going to break it and yeah. see if it's different. It is. A little more mellow. You don't get as much of the oak barrel on the on the palate. Right. And I say there's no right or wrong when it comes to spirits, bourbon. I enjoy it neat in a snifter. Some people enjoy some water. Some people enjoy just one large, almost rock. It, there's no right or wrong. It's what you enjoy. Yeah, that's that was... Uh, Terrific sommelier, uh, a woman down in New York I met, Heather Green. She's written a wonderful book about uh, whiskeys, and that's what she says. Doesn't matter how you drink it, you know, everybody can have a different uh, taste there. But she was uh, down at the Flatiron Room for uh, many years. That's when I got to meet her, and she she was the one who introduced me to the Four Roses at a pappy tasting. The... uh I'll tell you, this Buffalo Trace goes very nicely with the Camacho Connecticut's that we're enjoying today. Oh. Can't go wrong. And the similarities between cigars and spirits and bourbon is just amazing because it all starts with natural agricultural raw products, raw materials. I know. It grows right from Mother Nature. And uh, don't want to be a nationalist, but uh, these cigars, the tobacco, it's so American, so is the bourbon. Yep. Now, this uses a Connecticut uh, or Connecticut shade wrapper, and... Uh, just very pleasant, very smooth, grown not far from where we are located right now. Uh, but what's interesting is, you know, everything is subject to really Mother Nature because when they are aging bourbon in the rickhouses, the temperature, if you have a hotter summer, that can affect uh, the taste in the barrels, the location within the rickhouses. Uh, did they have a cold winter? Was it a warm winter? Just like cigar tobaccos, it's the exact same thing. It all starts with Mother Nature, and Mother Nature adds her unique twist yes. to everything along the way. Yes, definitely. And uh, I've started buying up some uh, uh, scotches that were uh, distilled before 1950. That's before they had atom bombs. So the uh, radioactive isotopes are everything not in the water at all. And I found a, a beautiful uh, uh, Highland Park. Oh, I love Highland Park. Uh, you know, that subtle yeah. uh, peat up uh, from the Orkneys. And uh, that one is was distilled in 1902. 1902. And so the nice thing is when you drink it, you will not be glowing no, after sipping. Uh, no. <laughs> distilled in 1902, bottled 1952. Wow. And... Uh, so uh, it's been sitting around uh, for a while, still beautiful in that bottle. And 
I can tell you, what was the water like back then? As you're right. talking about the environment and everything, everything changed a little bit. So it's a very interesting uh, thing to introduce. The question it, is, how did Winston Churchill not get a hold of it and finish it? <laughs> I mean, because let's face it, the man always had a, a glass of scotch in his hand and a cigar at all times. I think I bought this from a, a French family <laughs> that had it in the cellar for many years. How did you just, find that? Uh, some dealers in uh, London. Really? Yeah. They, they come up with this stuff uh, every now and then. And so they'll... They'll put it out, and if you want to sell through them, that's a very, very good place to uh, find stuff. So I get get things in it. And uh, uh, there's this these two women, fantastic, uh, fantastic tasters of uh, scotch and everything, and they came up uh, with a series called Golden Decanter, four bottles. It was uh, one of uh, Ben Nevis. One an Alcantoshan, uh, one was a Bowmore, and one Glenlivet. And when my friend and I uh, at Millennium, we were tasting this, when we sipped the Glenlivet, we looked at each other and said, oh my God, we've never tasted anything that good. And I think it was last year uh, in Forbes, a uh, whiskey guy was reviewing different things, and he went through the standard ones of whatever, and then he went to some exotics, and he says, if you can find it, this Glenlivet from Golden Decanter is the greatest scotch I've ever tasted. That's pretty, That's, a pretty yeah. good recommendation. Good endorsement. So, so there are some very, very crafty type ones over there who also, she she went around to each distillery, would taste, and they love her, and they, and they gave her, so she took, she takes single barrels and then uh, bottles them up and made, made her collection. Well, a good start so far with our Camacho Connecticut and starting with the Buffalo Trace, a very nice combination. And now we should move on to the Weller. Without a doubt, A.J. Fernandez is amongst the most highly touted cigar masters, cigar blenders, and cigar tobacco growers in the cigar industry today. Based in Nicaragua, he has multiple farms that grow exceptional cigar tobaccos, and he is able to expertly craft cigars that have great taste, great unique flavors on the palate. And in commemoration of the founding of the New World, he and his father, Ishmael, got together and created the New World line of cigars by A.J. Fernandez. There's an A.J. Fernandez, Connecticut, for those of you looking for a mild-bodied cigar. If you want a medium-flavored cigar that's got nice notes of spice with a bit of sweetness, the New World Cameroon would fit the bill. And Cameroon is a very difficult wrapper to get, tough wrapper to work with. A.J. has just absolutely hit it on the head with the New World Cameroon. And if you're looking for a cigar that's ultra-flavorful, that's bold, that's got a very, very rich taste, the New World Oscuro would be the bill. So the New World has something for every palate. The New World Connecticut, the New World Cameroon, or the New World Oscuro. Check all the New Worlds out at AJFCigars.com. Continuing our conversation with David Nolan, bourbon and business today on our Combination Cigar Dave and Bold Alpha podcast. Dave, before we go into the Weller, before we go into the Weller, and I'm salivating, I'm drooling already, I'm foaming at the mouth to get to that. Let's talk about you joining Millennium Partners and talk about what Millennium Partners does. Obviously, you were friends with the founder, Izzy, I forgot his last name. Englander. Izzy Englander. Right. 
Izzy's an easy first name to remember. You can't miss that one. He's the only Izzy in the business. Is that's it. <laughs> and there's a great deli in Cincinnati. If you ever want, honest to God, corned beef or pastrami with a potato pancake, Izzy's in downtown Cincinnati. You can't go wrong. Yeah, well, that's good because Izzy's not vegan. Uh, we don't want anybody that's vegan. No. Definitely not. We are we are not vegan friendly here on Cigar Dave and Bold Alpha. We are 100% carnivores. So, Izzy, I would assume, founds, uh, starts Millennium Partners in right. what year? That was uh, in the last quarter of 1989. Okay, so between like the mid-70s and 89, you were still at uh, Merrill Lynch? No, no, I uh, went... To the arbitrage. Yeah, I went to the uh, the arbitrage firm of S.P. Lewis, and then uh, that was only for about a year, and then I joined my uh, boss from Merrill Lynch in the arbitrage department, the great John Mulherin. Okay. And John Mulherin and I went uh, into Spear, Leeds, and Kellogg, uh, Peter Kellogg's firm, and we uh, started an upstairs trading business there. They were primarily specialists. Okay on the floor of uh, the exchange, and they did clearing. And that's when Izzy, with his new uh, Amex business, started clearing through Spear Leads, and John and I ran uh, the upstairs. Uh, in 84, John left, little tiff with Peter, and uh, then I was running that on my, uh, by myself in early January of uh, 85, uh, Izzy and uh, joined with John, and they started a, a firm, Jamie Securities, which uh, was quite successful until they ran until they what until they ran into uh, the uh, let's say the Giuliani era of attacking Wall Street and stuff. Okay. And uh, so uh, John got in trouble, and eventually he would be completely exonerated. Right. In fact, the judge would admonish uh, the prosecutors for bringing such a case. Really? And uh, so on appeal, they forbade any, it was not remanded, they forbade any further prosecution. Really? That's how uh, ridiculous it was. That's a pretty strong statement from the court. Yeah. So, but Izzy had to close down the firm. And what did, what did that firm do? That did arbitrage. Arbitrage up, as Upstairs well. trading. So now we say upstairs trading, what does that mean? That's where we were bringing in all the aspects of arbitrage, be it convertibles, options, okay. risk. You know. So you're trying to make a small percentage on potential mergers, other deals uh, that are announced or you think may be announced. And relative trading, too. So uh, a lot of mean reversion uh, type of trading. Reversion to the mean. Yeah. Goes right back to the moving averages. So we're trying to get consistent, uh, but but very good uh, returns, and because of the risk profile, we could use leverage, uh, and that's part of the art of the game there too. Back in that era, what was considered a good return per annum? Well, one of, things were starting out then. So in the uh, mid seventies, you had option the option market start. And in the early 80s, you started to have futures, like S&P futures. Right. And uh, as you were saying before, we didn't have the phones and the communication and everything we have now. We would have Merrill Lynch brokers with a piece of paper down there, and we'd tell them one unit, two units, three units of all of these, go buy or go sell. And we found out with the S&P 500, roughly about 100 stocks would give us about 90% of the performance. Right. And we would arbitrage back and forth between the futures and and the stocks, and we were making about 
a 28% annualized return with no, virtually no risk. Virtually no risk and uh, virtually no computers. No computers, really. There, there were some, but it was I, just... And I can't imagine today as a trader myself, because I, I enjoy, I am into the futures market. I trade the, uh, uh, the S&P uh, E-mini futures as well as the NASDAQ and sometimes the Dow, but there's not as much liquidity on that uh, or options. But the ability with futures to get in and out very quickly, the liquidity is phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Very little slippage, but I cannot imagine... Having to call up because sometimes I'm making decisions in a matter of seconds where I'm in and I'm I see a twenty point rise I'm like that's it I've captured my gain, but to think that you'd actually have to call and clear that or to place your order is almost foreign to me. Oh yeah, you you there was no no press a button back then. It's like what what do we do before FedEx? Uh, and it was but your word was your bond, right? You know, for errors for everything. You that know. was it. You, if you, and so they would recognize your voice when you called. And really? When you, when you said, uh, you know, da, 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 okay, or else you had direct wires. Right. Uh, that you would uh, just press the button and have to talk to somebody. And you'd yell at them if they didn't pick it up fast enough, right. you know. It's amazing how different, uh, different it is. Now, do you as a, now that you are a retired as vice chairman, and I know that you're still active in, in, in many activities, but uh, do you trade for your own account? Do you get into futures or options or use the computer or the your oh, mobile phone? Oh, sure. It's, uh, it's still, there's still lots of, uh, lots of things changing out there. And it's, uh, you, you know, no matter how much money you have, they can take away from you pretty quickly unless you protect yourself. And we're in a period now where uh, the amount of debt of the U.S. is, for the first time, past what it, the levels it was at World War II. It's crazy. And I do think we are in a war, right? as you were talking about China. And uh, I have a good friend, uh, General Rob Spaulding, who I would shoot with every now and then, uh, who was the military attache to China, and has written a book about it, and I would recommend looking up uh, Rob Spaulding and uh, finding his book, and you'll see a lot of what he has, uh, and I think he was instrumental in helping the uh, administ current administration wake up to the problems with Huawei, with those uh, South China Sea Islands. Absolutely. The threat to the Seventh Fleet, the whole thing. Yeah, as, uh, uh, unlike what Joe Biden says, look, man, China's not going to beat us. Come on, man. Wrong. Uh, China is the enemy, is the threat. While everybody still worries about Russia, which is an economy that's about the same size as California, which is pretty much a joke. Uh, they're they're focusing, but the Democrats tend to do that. The libs they they focus on the wrong uh, the wrong you know uh, items, the important items they tend to they tend to overlook. And I always there's a great saying that I I like to share with people: the market is an equal opportunity dream killer. <laughs> no matter how good you are, and I always, the one thing that one of my mentors taught me is always control risk. Yes. And the biggest mistake I see from people is they say, oh my God, that's a, you can't lose with that. I'm going to bet 75% of my account on that stock or that yeah. option, and it does not turn out very well. Always manage, and I'm sure as a professional, that was your mantra, always manage risk. Yeah, as you were saying, you take advantage of uh, people because very often... Something starts going down, and uh, oh, it's going to come back. It's right. uh, I like this. This company's great, and I made a lot of money. And I'm gonna, uh, and then it goes down further, and then you go, God damn, I should have sold, I should have sold, but it's too late now. And the final stage is 
Get me out. Get me out. Right. <laughs> There's a cycle that I always show people where basically it's it's you know uh, euphoria and then despair and right at the time that they can't take the pain anymore they've held on and like that's it get me out that's when the smart money is coming in and getting in and taking advantage of that and uh, and as you know you learn lessons everybody does uh, if you're in the market or if you're trading but the biggest thing I've always learned is you have to accept taking little losses small losses are okay you know as a, as as in anything whether you are playing in sports or you're playing uh, your blackjack or your baccarat or you're in the market nobody wants to take a loss but once you accept that taking small losses are fine and you embrace that that's when everything changes when you realize and you learn from the poker players watch the poker players i saw i played poker one time with a guy professional he folded probably 50 straight hands and people are around the table saying this guy this guy's a professional and by just watching him fold then all of a sudden there is a giant pot at the table and he had the hands bam cleared everybody out and that's a big lesson that I learned at that time saying sometimes you can have one giant tray that makes it and you have 50 small ones but the key is you got to be able to stay in the game absolutely it's uh yeah it's it's uh, it's also knowing when to not get off the train, and uh, that's part of it. And uh, sometimes you know they scare you because very often counter trend moves are short and sharp. Right, and they'll and flush you out. They flush the you algos out. are they flushing everybody you know, out but now. Short right. and sharp. It's a good time to add. Absolutely, you know, right when it reverts back to the mean, as we talked about, I. I I see that all the time, especially with this algorithmic trading. Late afternoons, I mean, Amazon on Fridays, you can predict it. I call it the, the Friday flush, where they're, the algos are hunting for liquidity, looking for the stops. So, boom, they drive it down. And then next thing you know, all of a sudden, boom, it's back up and, you know, hits a new high. So it's, it's interesting, uh, the psychology uh, of the market. So in the late 1980s, Izzy ends up starting a new firm called Millennium Partners. Yes. And uh, so that's the end of 89. So... Really, 1990 is his first uh, year starting, and uh, I would join him in 2001. I had uh, left Spearleys and had my own firm for uh, a while, my own. Doing arbitrage? Uh, arbitrage and uh, some, you know, technical trading, stuff right. like that, but, you know, mostly short term. Right. And uh, so in 2001, I would join Izzy, and of course, uh, later that year, 9-11 happens. There's all kinds of things that happen. And uh, uh, I guess we were about uh, a little over two billion at the time. Izzy had built it up. Uh, his his brother-in-law uh, was Jack Nash, the the famous uh, uh, head of uh, Opco. Uh, and so not familiar with Opco. What, what were they? An investment firm. Also? Oppenheimer. Oh, Oppenheimer. Op- Oppenheimer. Sure. Opco, Oppenheimer. Yeah. You know, okay, so he, he and uh, Leon Levy uh, were the two. Uh, fantastic guys that uh, ran that and so uh, Jack helped uh, Izzy you know how do you construct this firm how do you you know is it one in 20 is it, uh, so we were uh, expenses in 20 and now when uh, you say that so many people may not understand that expenses in 20 define that well a management fee uh, many funds take that and they can run profitable let's say off their management fee right um, we ran it was all we did was cover expenses okay and we didn't take a cut of the profits unless there were profits and then you got 20 and then we got 20 percent. yeah and so then uh uh 
So Izzy's management company to get to 20%. We built up. We ran into trouble with Spitzer in 2004. Another beauty, another prize, another, another holier yeah, than thou. Yeah, I always remember him announcing that he was going to launch this whole thing on Wall Street for mutual fund trading. And he said, it's unambigu- unambiguously criminal to trade after 4 o'clock on mutual funds. So I asked our lawyer, get, get me this uh, SEC law. And, of course, the law doesn't say anything about 4 o'clock. So it's at the discretion of the fund. So it was just nonsense. And one of our guys was trading after four, even though he was told not to. But, but you know, we couldn't track, you know, when the broker was actually executing. All right. So uh, we got in trouble. And that, that uh, took us from a little over $7 billion back down to like four and a half with withdrawals. Then we went to uh, about 14 and when you say four and a half, you were managing that money for pension funds, retirement funds, yes. institutional insurance a lot, companies. A lot of offshore. Right. So those are people that come to you and say, okay, we've got this money. We need to get a return for our retired teachers, for our retired firemen, uh, for our insurance. You know, we're an insurance company and we need to take the premiums and we need to right. get a return on that. And they would go to you or other uh, investment firms or other venture firms. And Universities, place you know. Right. Oh, Dowments. Okay. Yep. All okay. kinds of endowment. And uh, so uh, with the back and forth there, and again, we would we would grow, uh, you know, from 100 people to I think it's now somewhere pretty close to 3,000 that now work for Millennium around the world. Wow. Um, and uh, we have very diversified. So we have many, many managers, okay, that are all doing different things. Some similar, but they all concentrate on an uh, an industry sector if they're trading long short some can be doing treasury bonds some can be doing corporates some can be you know doing all this and each manager is responsible for his own P&L so it's a very very capitalist system Uh, each guy gets paid on you know what he makes gets a cut of that and uh, then everything is funneled into the one fund it's a meritocracy yeah and uh, so Izzy and I would uh, you know I was at one time uh, head of risk there to make sure that... Ah, risk, what we just talked about. Yes. That's and, it. And then we uh, brought in some guys that were a little bit more quantitatively oriented than I was. Okay. And uh, and uh, as we, we grew, and of course, we couldn't have done this without uh, the computers right. that are around today. Were you involved in algorithmic trading? Was Millennium at it? Yes. Okay. Uh, and uh, yes, and he, there was a guy... Uh, uh, Early on, it was just, I think it was him and maybe one or two other guys in his pod there that were uh, doing algorithmic, and that's uh, the great Igor Tolchinsky. Igor was uh, is still part of Millennium and uh, has his own, let's say, firm within Millennium with hundreds of guys working. I mean, he's, he's got guys doing algorithm stuff from Bulgaria, you know. Right. Uh, that are uh, putting stuff in, and he's he's been fantastic. Uh, so Millennium would trade, or to this day trades, stocks, bonds, uh, any venture real estate, uh, or specifically more liquid type Li- of ventures. Liquid. We can be, um, I haven't seen the latest since I'm out of there, but when I left, we could be about 90% in cash okay. in one week. Right. Assuming 20% of an average daily trading volume right. per stock, and based on certain spreads in the bonds, we could estimate the liquidity. Obviously, tight spreads are very sure. liquid, and 
uh, some of the others are So you wouldn't, would you stay, would Millennium stay in stocks for long periods of time, or would it be more? It short? could, it could. There could be, uh, uh, again, uh, something that's really winning for somebody, he doesn't want to get, get out of it, he thinks it's still going to go, he might change his offset to that. Most of our guys were rarely, rarely ever long more than 15% on a net basis. So you'd be long and short, but you'd have something against You'd have a hedge to, yeah, to cover. you'd have right. a hedge. Right, exactly. You know, it's interesting because I say one of the advantages that the individual investor has compared to an institutional investor is the ability to get in and out of stocks or options or futures, especially stocks, far easier than an institution. For example, let's say the Fidelity Magellan Fund. Uh, they go in and they want to buy 5% of, let's say, hypothetically Apple. They can't just go in and say, great, I need you know 5% of all the outstanding shares. And then when they want to sell it, they can't just press one button. Otherwise, the stock craters. So they normally do it over months, whereas an individual investor, if he wants to buy a hundred dollars, a thousand, ten thousand, even a hundred thousand dollars worth of stock. One press of the button, you're in. One press of the button, you're out. So it's so there are some uh, some advantages, and if you know how to take advantage of what the algos are doing, then you can certainly uh, you know do very well now. And uh, and so if, if you're an individual investor today, somebody wants to learn, what would you tell them? Because you're you came from a professional background. Yeah, um, I think. Uh you know, the psychology part you were talking about before uh, is really important and, uh, uh, and history a bit. So reading a book uh, like uh, The Madness of Crowds is a very good thing, too, right. because that tells you it's a guy in the, I guess he was the 20s and 30s trading and what it was like uh, trading off a ticker tape, the emotions, all the rest. It's the same thing today. And uh, so that's a very, very good book uh, to to be to read. And uh, there's a guy doing arbitrage and other things too, uh, uh, named Greenblatt. He wrote uh, "Beat the Market," mm-hmm. or was that Thorpe? Uh, Greenblatt had one, and uh, another guy named Th- I think it was Thorpe, who uh, was a blackjack counter, and he was one of the first uh, guys to really get in on the options and everything, and and. Sh- and uh, do the math for how to beat the market. And so, but Greenblatt's book is excellent also. So as an individual investor now, uh, you take much of what you learned, what you practiced at Millennium. Uh, do you get as much enjoyment today doing it for your own account as you did back then? Because back then you're trading with much bigger multiples, you know, yeah. billions uh, rather than, you know, let's say maybe millions on the end. Is it just as uh, rewarding and exciting? Thing? Oh, yeah. If, you know, the scale is different, but right. it's uh, it's certainly uh, just as much fun. And it's, it's, uh, it's fun to be involved and see uh, if your theories about the market, the world, particular companies uh, will pan out. And, of course, you're always going to miss stuff uh, if you're not right there in, in whatever. But uh, I've got some, some stuff I like, and I, I trade around, so... You know, it's interesting because somebody was talking to me about Tesla, and uh, the stock has just exploded to ridiculous levels. And someone said, it doesn't make any sense. I don't, this is ridiculous. This should be going down. And I said, keep your opinion uh, in check because it's not you. It's what the crowd, just talking about crowd mentality. There's a herd mentality that people see. And I, we saw this not too long ago with talking about dumb money. Hertz was bankrupt. They went Chapter 11. 
And virtually everybody that trades or that invests in stock that has, you know, maybe 5% of brain intelligence knows that in Chapter 11, the stockholders get wiped out. The stock isn't going to be worth anything. It was trading down at 80 cents. The next thing you know, it's up to five bucks, seven bucks. And I had a friend of mine saying, oh, again, a Robinhood investor saying, I'm, I'm getting in Hertz. I said, do you realize that Hertz is bankrupt? It's going to be worth nothing. He said, it's up to seven bucks today. I just bought, you know, like $10,000 worth. And I said, good luck. I said, here's my prediction. It's going to crater within the next probably week. I was wrong. It cratered in two days, yeah. right back down to where it came from. But again, that's the, the euphoria. And the one thing that I've learned is when other people are buying, stay to the sidelines. When other people are selling, that's sometimes when you want to get in right when it starts to level off, when it, it pushes down into a certain moving average. And it's very tough to do that because everybody's always taught buy when it's you know going up and it's hitting an all-new high. And I, I, I equate that to uh, kind of uh, buying wholesale compared to buying retail. You know, if you are, for example, Labor Day is coming up, and if you're Costco or you're Walmart, you're going to go and buy gazillions of hot dogs, and you're going to buy them at wholesale. You're not going to go and buy them at full retail. You're going to buy them at wholesale, and you're going to sell them to everybody at retail because you know there's the demand there. If you take that philosophy, that approach, and it's very hard to do because when things are sometimes settling down, people are saying, why would you do that? It's not going up. But sometimes that's the most opportune, and the risk is the least when you're buying when it does pull back. Right. The, uh, the contrarian uh, view of investing uh, usually keeps you out of a lot of trouble and is somebody like uh, Warren Buffett you know, is, is a guy that really profits from, from that type of thing. Uh, Tesla, just to, uh, the interesting thing there is another, uh, gentleman on the board of Johns Hopkins, another smart guy, James Anderson runs mm-hmm. Bailey Gifford at, uh, Edinburgh, Scotland. And, uh, James, uh, and I, we, we, we share a love for uh, Springbank together, uh, one of the best scotches. Okay. And, uh, but he was the second biggest holder of Tesla after Elon Musk. Really? This is a very considered guy. This is not an emotional guy, this or whatever. But he thought, I don't understand the Americans. They're about to build the biggest and best car company in the world, and everybody keeps knocking the stock, you know, knocking the whole thing. So he stayed in there, stayed in there, and uh, uh, wow. Wow. What a return he's had. And, Unbelievable. Uh, it's, it's just fantastic. His USA Growth Fund, I think, has doubled over the last year. And for a fund, that's pretty amazing. Incredible. And, and there are limits. There was this week, there was an announcement that one of the, I think, the second largest shareholder now behind Elon Musk had to trim their holdings because the value had gotten so big that it that's, represented an That's outsized, James Anderson. That's him. Yeah. That is him. Okay, so it represented an outsized percentage of their fund, and you have to have limits on, again, we talk about risk. risk. You can't be more than 5 or 10 whatever the yeah. their particular risk tolerance or risk level is. So they actually had to go sell, and that's why the stock the last uh, few days has actually gone down because when you're selling that amount of stock, to sell it, you're going to have to bring the price down where – to find willing buyers. I know it's uh, it's amazing, and it's but also there's on a contrarian view, Exxon was just taken out of the. Uh, Dow. Is that crazy? Would you ever think in a million years that an oil company the size of Exxon would be removed from the S and P? Yeah, well, look at uh, Amazon is like a two trillion dollar company. Right. Uh, I think Exxon is something like. Uh, uh, 
let's see, $250 billion, $300 billion, somewhere in there. Um, it, it, it really hasn't grown much over the last uh, 15 years, and so it's out of favor. But as things are going, to understand the, uh, uh, the economics, what's going to happen here, to make a Tesla battery, which weighs about 1,000 pounds, you have to dig up about 550,000 pounds of earth to get all the lithium and everything you need. To do what is going to be somewhere around the equivalent of, uh, let's say, a barrel of oil of energy in that battery, you have to expend 100 barrels of oil, to put it there. Okay. So to, to if you just eliminated... Uh, fossil fuels and kept the same percentage of wind and solar it is now, you'd have to cover roughly 41% of the earth with solar panels. Right. So, yes, for certain houses and certain, you know, put them on the roof, do this, the Tesla battery, the, you know, the advances he's made. So there's still plenty of room for Tesla to, to grow and stuff, but there's limits. And as this becomes the future and everything if they keep putting things out there that are not really uh economic but have to be subsidized you are in effect destroying capital and you will lower your gdp and you know so there's going to be a point here where it will go where wait a minute this green stuff is a little too crazy and you're always going to have demand for the fossil fuels and yes you're going to have more battery cars, but to make those batteries, to do everything, right. you're going to need that fossil well, fuel. Well, Joe Biden and the Green New Dealies, as I call them, say within 10 years, we can go all re- uh, renewable energy and all the cars, carbon cars, must come off the road for battery-powered cars. And here's my response to that, because they never, and what's amazing to me is any member of the liberal stream media never even brings this question up. And that is... How do you think the electric cars, the Teslas, or any of the other electric-powered cars are recharged using uh, electricity on the electricity grid? So, number one, if every car on the road would be converted from a fossil fuel combustion engine to an electric-powered car, number one, you would have to substantially uh, rebuild the electrical grid. That's number one. Number two, how do you think power is generated. It's not generated by by wind and solar. It's generated primarily by natural gas, which is very clean, and nuclear. Well, nobody wants to build nuclear anymore, and nobody wants to build a natural gas plant. Uh, now, many of the current coal-powered plants are being retrofitted or knocked down down in South Florida, and in Tampa, they just knocked down the old coal plants, and they put in a very efficient natural gas. We're loaded with it domestically. We don't have to rely on foreign sources. But they are kidding themselves, and they are fooling the American public by telling people, this will be great, we'll have all renewable. No, you will not. You've got to power these things. And not only that, what are you going to do with the batteries if they're That's dead? That's right. The pollution from this is unbelievable. Right. This international agency estimates the composite plastic blades of the wind windmills that they're uh, putting out there for wind power, um, that by 2050... These things will create so much pollution, so much waste, that it will be larger than all the plastic wandering around the world today. All that plastic pollution, we will double it just with the blades of the wind if we go in that direction. 
I'm often asked, General, I'm looking for a nice, mild, medium-bodied cigar that's not overpowering, that I can enjoy in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, maybe with some nice espresso or coffee or a nice scotch, cognac, port. What do you recommend? Very simple. The Gurkha Real. Cannot go wrong. Since the second the Gurkha Real was launched one year ago, it has become an instant hit, a huge seller. Why? Because it's consistent, it's smooth, the construction, the complexion of the cigar are delightful. It starts with an Ecuadorian Connecticut wrapper, a Dominican Olor binder to give it a touch of sweetness, and it uses Nicaraguan and Dominican fillers. And the result is a cigar that has nice notes of creaminess, mild to medium flavor on the palate. On a 1 to 10, it's going to be in the 4 to 6 range, so it's not going to be overpowering. It's not going to be harsh. It's a cigar that will give you nice notes of sweetness that you can enjoy, as I said, any time of day or night. So if you're looking for a cigar that you can pass out to friends, to associates, to enjoy together with those that may not be experienced connoisseurs, the Gurkha Real would fit the bill. And for those of you that are experienced cigar connoisseurs, you too will enjoy the Gurkha Real. Gurkha Real, GurkhaCigars.com. David Nolan, retired vice chairman of Millennium Partners, fellow cigar connoisseur and bourbon and scotch enthusiast, spirit enthusiast. Our guests were talking bourbon and business. And many of you enjoy great cigars, great spirit, great bourbon, enjoy business. And on Bold Alpha, on this combination podcast of Cigar Dave and Bold Alpha, it's a great opportunity to expose you and to introduce you to very fascinating people. And Dave, you and I met because of our love of cigars and bourbon through uh, a mutual friend. And and I'm sure in business, you have met many people that enjoy cigars, you enjoy spirits, and the business that people always say, oh, it's great to do business on a golf course. I say, no, that is second compared to a cigar <laughs> and scotch or a spirit. Oh, yes, definitely. And uh, uh, a f- former Millennium uh, uh, partner that ran the uh, fixed income came from Lehman Brothers uh, that... He, well, he had left Lehman Brothers because he thought they were doing bad things, and he turned out to be right. But uh, Michael Gelband uh, is a ter- terrific uh, cigar and uh, spirits uh, player and uh, a good friend of Marvin Shanker. Marvin Shanker, right. Uh, Shanker of uh, Cigar Aficionado. Cigar Aficionado. Yeah. So we would go to uh, the Four Seasons every year for the big... Uh, festivity there his cigar aficionado would throw that's right for uh, uh with michael milken for uh, prostate cancer research. prostate cancer yep. and uh also um had a lot of fun watching rudy giuliani and michael milken sit- sitting next to each other at the right. uh, at the table <laughs> <laughs> interesting <laughs> how what goes around comes around right big well circle. there's there's certain things that people can bond about right. and, Absolutely. and uh that was uh, that was it so uh all right, before we talk about uh, leaving um, Millennium Partners and retiring, let's uh, move over to that beautiful Weller that you have that I've been staring at for the last 45 minutes. That is a beauty, 12 years old. And, you know, Weller is, I think, one of the hidden gems from bu- not only Buffalo Trace, but in all of the bourbon universe. People tend to overlook Weller. Yes, this is uh, from the same mash that uh, they make the Pappy Van Winkle from. And it's another weeded bourbon, which is the style of uh, 
Buffalo Trace Distillery, and this one is just uh, phenomenal. Phenomenal, and it's getting up there in price, and it's yep. tough to find. It is tough to find. Uh, uh, it's interesting because Tommy Diadio, who is the uh, senior executive vice president of spirit procurement for the Corona Cigar Lounges and the Davidoff Lounge in Tampa. Uh, they go up uh, every year to Buffalo Trace, and they are one of the big buyers of barrels, single barrels. And they sell, not only do they sell the bar- the, the bottles at their various stores, but people just love the taste. So people that go to want to have a cocktail and a cigar, they go through tons of barrels every year. And he said, we're having a tough time getting them, and we're one of the top purchasers yeah. in the country because it's gotten so popular. And yeah. And- Say cheers, by the way, here. Cheers. And Blanton's also, uh, right. I would have had that today, but uh, I drank the last of the, uh, of the one I had, and I can't find it anywhere around here. It's tough. It's amazing. Bourbon is probably, brown spirits have been very hot now for about 10 years. And An interesting fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, there are more bourbon barrels aging in Kentucky than there are humans. <laughs> True story. That is an absolute true story. I, I did not know. <laughs> that is a true story. Now, my my, fla- my tasting notes on this, I'm getting a nice, just on the nose, again, a little bit of citrus, almost vanilla. Mm. I'm getting a little more vanilla. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a little bit of spice towards the back of the palate. Nice amount of warmth on the exclusive. I'm, I'm Cigar Dave warmth factor, I'm getting about a 5-6. Okay. I find with this, compared to the Buffalo Trace, much more on the palate in the back. Right. Correct. 100%. Than the the tongue. 100%. Okay. 100%. All right. Now, get a drop of water in there. Okay. I almost almost don't want to do that because it tastes so good. I know. I I, I don't want to dilute it. But if you break it here. No, you're right. Just a little bit. And you just put a cap full of water. That's it. Not even. But anyway. Mm. Yeah, that softens it up a little bit. Just, It's amazing. One little cap. So we've got a shot in a a nice... uh, snifter here and you put in a cap full of water you've got a bottle called just water and it's a cap i mean that's it it is not much at all nope. and it's amazing what that cap full of water does just, just cleans it up it just changes the chemical it just a bit it just does something to the molecular bonding or whatever from sitting in there and it changes a little bit how it feels in your mouth absolutely a little less just on the palate a little okay. less intense. Yeah, a little less intense and a little bit towards the back of the tongue now. You start to get this warmth a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Very pleasant. Dave, I, I, I know this is tough talking about business and talking about bourbon and having a cigar. I know this could be the toughest assignment you have all week. Mm. This, this, I, I know you're roughing it today. I know. <laughs> I know. And I'm sure you found in business. And you know I love Connecticut shade. Well, I know you do. That's why I, I broke out the uh, Camacho Connecticut today. Uh, but I find the people that you can meet and I, I repeat this all the time to people i say always bring an extra cigar because you never know who you will meet <laughs> so true and and who you'll end up having a conversation i always say this you know today we see that there's race relation issues and people say we need to get more diverse and embrace our diversity and everybody's howling at each other i said if you want to go and see real a true melting pot real diversity where everybody gets along go to a cigar lounge where people are smoking cigars they're having spirits you will see white Black, Asian, Indian, Native American. You will see Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, uh, Hindus. You'll see everybody. You'll see blue-collar workers, white-collar workers. And amazingly, nobody has to be told, let's embrace our diversity. Everybody gets along. And they're all solving the problems of the world, having great discussions. And I said, we need to go back to the days where you have uh, cigar-filled, cigar-smoke-filled back rooms. Because in those days, 
people got stuff done. Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill, both on the opposite ends of the spectrum. What do they do every Friday? They met for a cigar and they met for a scotch in the White House yep. every Friday. Yep. It's uh, it's something that's been lost a bit today called civility. You're right. And there's nothing like uh, a little sip of whiskey and a cigar to get everybody in the mood of being civil and uh, having great discussions, jokes, everything. And uh, it's, a, it's great bonding. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about retirement. You were at uh, Millennium Partners for how many years? Uh, let's see, two, uh, 18. 18 years. Uh, 17, 17. Now, you're in great shape. You're a young, you're young uh, uh, a gentleman. Why would you retire? Well, I was 70 years old, and I said, uh, So what? That's it. That was it, huh? That's it. And, you were uh, ready. And, and it was also, we had cycled in new guys, and uh, Izzy had uh, re- basically replaced himself from a more operating basis by uh, bringing in uh, Bobby Jane from uh, Credit Suisse. Bobby is a brilliant guy, very versed in uh, derivatives and everything over in the markets over at uh, Credit Suisse. So he was a uh, a great addition there. Um, and so there's there's transitions going on uh, within there. But uh, as you bring in new guys and younger guys who have the experience or whatever, they they're hungry. They can they can do the job. No matter you can't kid yourself. You know when right. you hit seventy. Uh, at some point, you you know you sit back and say, okay, it's it's been a great run. Let's uh, let's take a break. Well, I think you're still listed as a retired vice chairman on Millennium Partners website, so that's a good sign. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you were ready, and uh, so Izzy stepped back. You decided you wanted to step back. You're still involved in any way, shape, or form with Millennium. Well, I'm an I'm an investor there, so I got a okay, lot, of, so a lot still... of my money there. Okay. So uh, and every now and then, I, I'll talk to some of the managers that I know and stuff, and. Uh, and uh, do that, but uh, we uh, we had I, we had a fun time. We I, I support uh, the uh, Lead the Way Foundation, which was started by uh, uh, a father who lost his son uh, James Ryan, uh, Duke lacrosse player. But after nine eleven, he decided he had to go fight for the country. And he became a ranger and was killed in Iraq by Iranian forces. Right. Which they don't like to, to say. Yeah, they never anyway. like to talk about that. And I, I got a kick that the Dems were actually criticizing at the DNC President Trump for, number one, not going, putting more troops in Syria and pulling out of Afghanistan, but at the same time, killing foreign diplomats. Oh. Soleimani, who was not a diplomat, he no. was a terrorist. Yeah. And so... Uh, we support that. One of the things at the auction uh, that they have, which is a lot of fun, was we went down to uh, a place in Arkansas across from Memphis where they uh, train uh, special forces and stuff like that and come there. So we had a weekend of special forces training, blowing things up, shooting AK-47s, full automatic, pistols, uh, doing obstacle courses, stuff like that. So... Uh, uh, Bobby, uh, Jane came on that one and, uh, he's in great shape, uh, and, uh, was able to do a lot more than I, I could, but we had a, a good time shooting and, uh, a gr- great manager in the fixed income for us, John Bonello. He came and, uh, he's, he's a fantastic guy. Very funny. Uh, trying to go on a rope across a pond. Didn't quite make it. Yeah, I don't think I'd. uh, I think I'd pass on that. Uh, That that would not be my cup of tea. And one of our top uh, risk guys, uh, Vinci, uh, 
came. And uh, so by doing things like that, it, you, you really bring the firm together. And I think that's uh, uh, a much more important thing in understanding and working with each other and facing some of the risks that are going to come up from time to time right. and making good decisions. Absolutely. Because there's, as I always say, there's always some sort of black swan event that will come. You never know. And if you are positioned properly with risk, even if it does hit and the worst happens, you're still going to live another day. Yeah. And the problem is when people have too much exposed, because you can't predict anything. You never know. Something could happen this, you know, in a minute from now. You can't predict it. If you've seen one market crash, you've seen one market crash. That's right. And, and uh, you know, if anybody would have said, oh, by the way, in 2020, when we started the year A, there's going to be this pandemic going around the world. Look, the economy was booming. Things were going well. Everybody was employed. The country was in great shape. Still is in great shape. It's going to get better under President Trump for the next four years when he wins re-election here in a couple of months. But to me, this and President Trump said like an invisible enemy that just came around. And, and what's amazing is the Chinese knew it. They could have prevented it. They could have shut things down and they didn't. And that's why not only I say, are they the enemy of America? They're the enemy of the world. And not only do they risk the health of the world, but they've risked the health, the economic health of the world as well. Yeah, I uh, well, I for sure know they certainly knew by uh, late October how infectious this was and how dangerous it was. Um, and they just let uh, people from Wuhan keep traveling all over. They shut down air traffic to Beijing, but they let them go to Milan. Right. Um, had they worked with the U.S., called people in, WHO was useless and, uh, and, and didn't, um, let's say, query more as to what, what the problem was. Uh, they just let this happen. I don't know. Communists, you know, if you look at the pattern with uh, Chernobyl, did they really want to hurt the rest? Of I, I think it's just that when they fail, it's, every, it's everybody's trying to cover their ass, and, right. and there's no accountability. Nobody owns anything. You know, just just run away because there's only one guy on top, and you know, to make himself look good, if you stick out, he might chop your head off. Right. So it's it's a terrible, terrible system for uh, correcting itself and addressing problems. Socialism doesn't work. Look at Cuba. Look at Venezuela. I tell people, all these people that say, oh, socialism is great. I say, well, why don't you go and live in Venezuela for 30 days, and then you come back and let me know how that worked out for you. Yeah. But they never want to admit that. They never want to go there. It's always they want to destroy what made America great. And here's what's interesting. David, you waited tables. So clearly, uh, you know, you weren't a descendant of the Rockefellers. Many of the people you work with that started these firms on Wall Street or in business or at Johns Hopkins when you were on the board, they were entrepreneurs or they started working for firms. They worked their way up. You look at the two, look at Tesla and look at Apple. They were both started really by individual entrepreneurs. And I assure you, when Apple was started, Stephen Jobs and Wozniak, Steve Wozniak didn't say, man, we're going to be you know, worth uh, $100 trillion one day. They were just trying to make a computer and sell it. Yeah. And that's what's great about America is the fact that look at people today. There's right as we speak, there's somebody inventing or creating something that in five or 10 years from now will be ubiquitous that will change the world. That doesn't happen in communism or a socialist country. No, it's... it's uh God, I, I read, I can't find it, uh, but there was this great op-ed in uh, the Wall Street Journal once uh, talking about religion 
and how it promotes uh, the individual, which then promotes uh, good economic results. And Judeo-Christianity is, you go around the world, those are the societies that are the greatest economic ones. Right. And uh, you look at Africa and what happened there. And, they, you know, you can look at Haiti and their religion, voodoo. And it was always uh, praying to a god to screw up your neighbor. You knew God was vengeful and bad things were going to happen, but you would pray it would happen to your neighbor, not you. That's completely different from individual responsibility and and going after uh, being the most you can be. And uh, so it's a f- fabulous op-ed. I forget who wrote it, but it was really uh, eye-opening to me uh, how you do that. And I don't know now, uh, what was the... Uh, uh, you know, the hearings with McCarthy back against the communists sure. and stuff. Well, they were really terrible for a lot of people who got roped up into it and really uh, destroyed uh, careers and everything and for no reason. But he was going after something that turned out to be pretty true. The amount of communists in the government that were sympathizers with uh, the Soviets and everything, was real. it was real. And today, I don't know, but if you follow the Constitution... Somebody like uh, Bernie Sanders is un-American. I don't know how he can take an oath as a senator. Right. Because many of the things he's proposing are against the Constitution. So he should be asking for amendments to the Constitution. Good luck. And uh, and th- that's the difference. If the Constitution is there to protect the people from its government, we have to stick to the Constitution. Well, I look at Ilhan Omar. She was eating sand, I believe, at a Somali or Sudanese refugee camp. The United States welcomed her into this country. She was on uh, social services welfare when she first came. People, private citizens, contributed, helped the refugees that came from Sudan, Somalia. Uh, moved, settled in Minnesota, was able to get a public school education, went to college. The very country that embraced her from a life of misery uh, and, and poverty in Africa, she now believes to be a colonistic, uh, uh, oppressive, evil nation. And to me, anybody that comes to this country from another country should immediately open their eyes and say, this country welcomed me. This country, I can do anything. I can come with nothing, and now I'm a congresswoman. You would think that she would be appreciative. The total opposite. And all these people that have, there's millions of people that are killing themselves or or would be willing to die to come to the United States, legally or illegally, and yet here's somebody that was welcomed in as a refugee that was saved who now has turned their back on this country. Now, if you want to say, look, I believe in this or I believe in that, I want to change things, okay, fine. But to say that America is evil and colonistic, no country has done more with their power to help the rest of the world than the United States of America. Oh, sure. And, you know, I can... The United States has never really been uh, colonistic. No. I mean, Puerto Rico, maybe, you know. Yeah, not even that. <laughs> you know, so. we, we've never gone in and said, okay, great, we just beat you, now we're going to take your country. That's right. never happened. Never happened. So uh, with the Brits, if you look at uh, one of the biggest colonies, India, today, so much of what gives them stability is what the British brought to Correct. them. Correct. And what a great, great civilization uh, with m- many faceted is India, but but really their judicial system is British, their train system is British. Right. <laughs> you know, so 
they took what what improved them, and that's it. And I don't think uh, the Brits really ruined the place or ruined their culture. Didn't take uh, so much, but obviously there were issues there, and no, nothing's perfect uh, the way it goes. But uh, um, you know, for instance, the uh, the opium trade into China, that you know that stuff that was that the Brits did that was right. terrible. Mm-hmm. Right, no that question about it. No question about it. Well, the big finale. Oh, quick before we. Take a short time out. What do you like most about retirement? What do you like least about retirement? Uh, I like most uh, about retirement. I spend a lot more time with my wife, Janet, who I really enjoy. And I'm spending, you know, this uh, pandemic. uh, I have my kids with me, my three grandsons, and we're all together. And uh, it's a special time. So I've I've had fun with that. And... uh, and you know we're we're getting on every now and then eating dinner with the same people. I'm sure right. it's fine for me. I'm not sure my uh, kids like it, but <laughs> but uh, that's that. And uh, what I like least about retirement, um, it's tough to tell because I, everything's relative. And I I talk to some of the guys I work with, and they're doing the same thing I am. They're at home, right? Uh, you know, looking at their computer and doing something like that. And uh, every now and then going out and playing golf or something. So Right. So <laughs> I would say probably that the camaraderie going in. Now, people aren't in the office now, but going into the office, having some of that camaraderie, the oh, conversation. Yes. Yes. But I, I would say also probably not having to worry about being in at 7 in the morning or 8 or maintaining that that structured schedule is probably yes. a nice change. Yes. Many and, uh, you know, it's tough managing people. And uh, there's always problems that come up with that. And you're always trying to figure out what the right thing to do is on that. So, yes, you step back from that. It's a, it's a little easier on yourself. And you can just try managing yourself, which is always a problem. But. All right. The grand finale is coming up where we're going to enjoy. We've got uh, the – wait, we're going to – in just a second, we've got four rows of single barrel, and the big grand finale will be the Pappy Van Winkle Family Reserve 23. We'll do that right around the corner. Brand new cigar just launched from Camacho, where their theme is Live Loud. And the cigar that captures the essence of Live Loud is the brand new Camacho Nicaragua, forged in fire from the volcanic island of Ometepe that produces Cigar tobaccos with full frontal flavor, notes of sweetness, spiciness, oak, expertly crafted for those of you that want boldness, richness in a cigar. The new Camacho Nicaragua comes in three sizes, a Grand Churchill, a Toro, and a Robusto. And each of the cigars starts with an Ecuadorian wrapper, Honduran binder, and a three-country filler blend, Honduran, Dominican, and the special Nicaraguan tobacco that really sets the Camacho Nicaragua apart. It is a unique flavor profile. On a scale of 1 to 10, I say this is about a 7 to 8 in terms of intensity. But it's a well-balanced cigar, nice notes of cinnamon, of spice, very rich. It is the brand new Camacho Nicaragua. Forged in fire, live loud, Camacho. Available at DavidoffGeneva.com. David Nolan, retired vice chairman of Millennium Partners, fellow cigar connoisseur, lover of fine bourbon and whiskeys, our guest on this combination Cigar Dave and Bold Alpha podcast, Bourbon and Business, our subject today, celebrating National Bourbon Heritage Month. Dave, before we finish up uh, these two spirits, how did you become a cigar connoisseur? Well, I am uh, have a good friend, uh, uh, Bob Sullivan, so he... Uh 
was into cigars and horse racing, and he became an investor uh, when I had my own firm. We got to know each other. He was at Drexel uh, uh, for many years. And so, uh, just as you said, uh, you know, we'd, we'd sit down and talk, and he'd pull out a cigar. And I said, you know, let me have some of those. So that's uh, more where I got into it, and that's where I, uh, I guess from him, learned a lot more. And, uh, you know, going into the old Dunhill store uh, off Fifth there. and Classic. Uh, Nat going, Sherman? Going upstairs, and uh, there was a guy from General Cigar there, and I said, well, what's the most important part of cigar? And he says, the wrapper. Must really? have been Edgar Coleman. Uh, very funny. One of the Coleman's, uh, I forget her name, she was uh, on the board of the School of Advanced International Studies for Hopkins, and uh, she was there. And I was down in uh, uh, Argentina fishing, and uh, by accident, uh, this guy I shoot with every now and then, he comes in with a friend. They're talking, and he's a Coleman. And so I said to him, you know, I was speaking to a General Cigar guy once, and he said, uh, the most important part of cigar, and he finished the sentence. Is the wrapper. Is the wrapper. 50 to 60% of the flavor comes from and, the uh, wrapper. Yeah, and they were the ones that really started the premium cigars. That's right. And got going. Uh, so and Edgar Coleman Sr. was a gem. Uh, may he rest in peace. And his son, Edgar Jr., another gentleman, uh, wonderful, uh, gen- both just wonderful guys. And Edgar Coleman Sr. had a tremendous passion. And people don't realize the Cullmans were extremely wealthy. I mean, they their, their net worth uh, started with a B. But Edgar would love, Edgar Sr., he would travel the country, go into cigar retailers, and the reps would tell me, everyone would say the same thing. We would have to drag him out because he would love talking to the customers. He would, he would bring out a cigar and say, here, try this, have this. He was just a wonderful gentleman. Uh, and I had the opportunity to go down to the Dominican Republic with them several times at their factory, spend much, tons of time with them. They launched many great cigars that we were involved with. And uh, Edgar Coleman Sr. is definitely missed in the cigar industry. And so is Edgar Jr. He's uh, doing some other ventures, but they were just wonderful. And to me, that's... The cool thing about cigars, you still have, just like whiskey and, and, and distilling, you still have many families that are involved. And there's a difference between a family and a big conglomerate. Yeah. Huge difference. Yes. Uh, mostly in the quality. You know, you get a, like this cigar, it's so well rolled. The ash is just burning right. so evenly. The draw is, is, is perfect. And, uh, you know, some of the Cuban cigars, eh. You know, Forget it. Overrated. Thing. I tell people, you know, everybody, it's the forbidden fruit. I, yeah. I use the, the analogy. It's like Coors beer was when I was in college. Everyone's like, oh, my God, you've got Coors. You're going to, you're going to Colorado. Bring back a six-pack of silver bullets. Yeah. Now that you can get Coors at every liquor store, convenience store, supermarket, the thrill is gone. The thrill is gone. Give me an Anchor Steamer. Uh, exactly. You know, uh, Give me a nice craft beer, an IPA. It's the same thing. Cuban cigars. I say Cubans make the best cigars. The Cubans that are in Nicaragua, Honduras, <laughs> and the Dominican Republic, and in Miami or Tampa. Yeah. Those are the best yeah. that make the best cigars. All right. Let's uh, two final spirits we've got. We'll do the Four Roses single barrel. This has a higher rye content. Yes. This is uh, about 25% rye. And, uh, and Ryan's going to give it a little bit more of a peppery, spicy taste yeah, on the palate. So let's nose this a bit. Definitely getting some nice sweet notes. Hmm. Definitely a lot of warmth right on the yeah. nose. Yeah, little, a yeah, a little bit more hit uh, yeah. on the nosing. Yep. And that's All right. the rye coming we'll in. Say cheers. Cheers. And we'll take a taste here. Oh, yeah. 
major spice on the back of the palate and on the tip of the tongue. Yeah, tip of the tongue, back of the palate, same for me, too. Yeah, same thing. Back of the tongue, hardly anything. Mm -mm. But definitely, you know, you got to swallow a couple of times to... uh, Oh, yeah, there's some heat. ...to uh, get that So now we'll put a little uh, what they call branch water in just one little capful in the equivalent of a... Let's, uh, Let's break it just... With a touch. I mean, if there's a teaspoon, that would be a lot in here. Oh, no. This is a dropper. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Okay. Okay. We'll swish it around here. All right. Take another sip. A little different nosing, too. Definitely different on the nose. Not as much heat. I'm still getting some spice. Spice, but it's tamer. That little splash of water. You're you're getting some of the vanilla coming through. A lot of vanilla. A lot of oak. Mm. That is very nice. Now, I've got to clear my palate here with a little water. Because for our grand finale, oh. we have got... Oh, definitely. This is... Yeah, much less on the back of the palate and a little bit more on the sides of the tongue right. now. And you bring up a very good point. If you have some bourbon or even scotch and it's maybe a little bit too sharp for you, just put... Try breaking it. Yeah, yeah, just break it. Just maybe a quarter teaspoon or a half teaspoon of water. You will find that it cuts it just nicely and makes a big difference. So we'll put a little water in our snifter here. We'll swirl that around because... It's pappy time. It's pappy time. When you've got... What was it? Uh, I'm trying to remember. It was when you've got the time, we've got the beer. I'd say now, if you've got the time, we've got the pappy. All right, fantastic. I'm going to savor every amount of this, I can tell you that. Now, this I'm getting some nice maple on the nose. Sweetness, maple, a little honey. Very fruity, I'll say. Much more complex. Definitely. Definitely more. uh, Pappy, very tough to get. I mean, when it's gone, it's gone. That's it. It's. I can't even remember how much a bottle of Pappy is now. It's changed so dramatically. Yeah, it's uh, you know you can't buy it at retail. No, nobody sells it at retail. Every, every now and then, I get a call that some some have come in, uh, but uh, you know this is ninety five point six proof. Most of the uh, bourbons are going to be around that hundred. Right. So um, let's see, Buffalo Trace it's is probably what forty five proof. Forty five. Yep. Weller is 45. Yeah, all in that same category. And, and, and he, you can see uh, my my uh, my German Shepherd Baron. He knows we're about to sample, and he's very upset uh, that oh, he's, he's not going to get a sample. Yeah. <laughs> he wants to come out and enjoy some. 50% on the four rows of single barrel, and right. the Pappy is 95.6 proof. Wait a minute, 95.6, that can't be right. Wait a minute, 95.6, wait a minute, let me take a look here. We're talking proof, no, it's uh, it's 96, oh yeah, alcohol is 47, you're right, it's 96 proof, 95 proof, okay. All right, so, swirling it around, uh, nice notes of honey, vanilla, we'll say cheers, our big finale, the Pappy uh, Van Winkle Family Reserve, 23, this is bottle I8510, bottle by Old Rip. Van Winkle Distillery in Frankfort, Kentucky. Here it goes. Oh, just a touch of warmth and spice in the back of the palate, back of the throat. 
but just very smooth and clean. You you almost are afraid to break this. Yeah, just a drop. But we'll try. It really does not need to be broken. And what I love on the Pappy Van Winkle, there's Pappy with a big cigar hanging out of the end yeah. of his mouth. That is just a perfect finale. We swirl this around. Just a drop yeah. of uh, water to cut it. We'll and take it, it, this was much more all over the mouth. Tongue and uh, very palate. Smooth. Just very nice, smooth. Very aromatic. Very pleasant. Night notes of uh, light sweetness. Almost a cinnamon spice. Very pleasant. Now I know why they. it's so popular. Oh. Mm. This is uh, as elegant as any scotch. You can't go wrong. Uh, really good. Dave, it has been a, uh, a pleasure to have you on our combination Cigar Dave and Bold Alpha podcast today, talking bourbon and business, talking about your background, and I appreciate you bringing four fantastic spirits. We started out with the Buffalo Trace, we went to the Weller 12, then we had the Four Roses Single Barrel, and we capped it off with the Pappy Van Winkle Family Reserve 23-year-old bourbon whiskey. Cannot go wrong. Dave, hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed having you on as our guest. Thank you, Dave. And we'll have to do it again for sure. Okay, uh, probably in about three hours. No. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, cigars, spirits, great conversation. It can go on and on. Cigar Dave, the general, saying, may your humidor always be full, may your cutter always be sharp, may your ash be extra, extra long, semper delictatio, always pleasure, long live the alpha, make America great again, make masculinity great again, life is good. <laughs> <laughs>